Please be seated. Okay, last words, last words, first words. Let me ask real quick, uh, Stephen Parsons, can you hear me? All right, Miss Val, Miss Ann, everybody can hear me? Good, good. We have signals worked out, so, so I know if the mics are fine. Last words, there are different kinds of last words. Um, there are the last words that are truly last words. When someone is about to die on their deathbed, their last utterance, And those have been an interesting collection over the years. I like quotes, I like last words, and I do find some of these things and keep them. And I I brought just a few this morning to get us started. There are the last words that I would typify as arrogant. Uh, One man on his deathbed said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And that was Karl Marx in 1883. There are last words who I find kind of sad. Uh, this person said, all my possessions for a moment of time. They'd come to the end of their allotted time. And they wanted just a little bit more. This was Queen Elizabeth I in 1601, 03, I'm sorry. Then there's the last words that are peaceful. And I would hope to come to an end like this myself. Uh, this, this candidate said, this is the last of earth. I am content And you just kind of get the picture he died well and went off to his reward. That was John Quincy Adams, uh, 1848. And then there's the somewhat humorous, if you have a twisted sense of humor, which I tend to lean towards. Um, This man, his name is Erskine Childers, who in 1922 was facing the firing squad as an Irish patriot. And him and his posse were lined up, ready for their last moment. And he said, take a step forward, lads. It will be easier that way. Now, these are not the kinds of last words that I'm really talking about this morning, but they serve as a good introduction. I'm more considering what I saw in college. We had on campus, or at least they tried to establish, what was called the Last Words Society. And it was an interesting setting because we had a lot of career missionaries, educators, pastors, preachers, scholars, whatever. And the goal was that they would invite one of these men, and they would tell him on this date and time, We want you to deliver an address to the next generation or two. So you had a chance to consider your last words. They generally picked an old man full of years and experience. And I remember the guy they chose the first time. He'd been married 50 years, had six children of his own or something like that, adopted eight others, had served as a missionary in Kenya, and had served as an educator in high schools and in colleges. And I thought, fantastic idea. Fantastic evening. They even served him a last meal in the cafeteria before we all walked over to hear the man speak. I'm talking that kind of setting of last words. Now, his cannot be summarized into one little statement because he gave a speech. And we're not here to talk about him other than to introduce the idea. But those are the last words where you have the opportunity, where you know maybe the end is coming and you've got somebody's ear. And so you want to say, what is the one thing? What is most important? What can I impart to that person uh, to get their attention? And that is where we're at this morning, because that's what 2 Timothy is. We don't think these are Paul's necessarily last words in totality, but we know that these are Paul's last written words. We know that at this time Paul is back in prison, having possibly been released for a year or two, but now he's back. He's sitting in a prison in Rome. He has already made a presentation before the emperor on one occasion in which all of his supporters, according to his own words here, um, deserted him and he was left alone. So here's the Apostle Paul standing before the ruler of the known world, at least in the Western Hemisphere, giving a testimony to the truths of the gospel, and then he's sent back to his prison cell. And he expected that the next person that came to see him would take him out and cut off his head. 
And so Paul has a few moments and he says, now what am I going to do with this time? And his mind drifted back to Timothy. Timothy had been a young man that he had met early on in his missionary journeys, a man who had come to the faith in a young time and had traveled with Paul as his assistant, as a pastor, as someone he had left in charge of churches in various places as he'd traveled. Timothy is a man who seems to have been like many of us. Um, He suffered with a little bit of unsureness. Even though he had an intellect, he understood the gospel, he was a believer, he had a certain streak in him where at times maybe he became more timid. I knew a pastor who, who could preach before a thousand people, and yet he said he had been kind of intimidated into silence by a five-year-old on a plane one time. Um, we're like that. I'm like that. My wife is sometimes surprised I can get up here and speak, but this is nothing. This really is nothing. But you put me one-on-one in a coffee house with somebody, and it's a different story. I'm a little more awkward. Okay, We all have our gifts. We all have our place. That's not mine. That's maybe not Timothy's. Timmy has Timothy. Timmy. <laughs> Let's give him a nickname. Okay, <laughs> Timothy has some timidity. And Paul, Paul addresses that in verse 7 before we even got to our, our part. He reminds Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love. And discipline. And so there's a reminder Timothy, you've got great gifts, you've got a great calling, you need to be about it, and you need to remember that God has not made you timid, but He has given you a spirit of power and of love and of discipline, meaning self control. So this morning, what words would Paul have for this young man, Timothy, as he sits in prison awaiting execution? We're looking at our text, verses 8 through 12. We are actually only going to look at verse 8 and 12, and to that end, we only have two main points, one from verse 8, one from verse 12. And your main points this morning are Paul's call and Paul's testimony. This is not the calling of Paul on Paul's life, but this is Paul's call to Timothy and through Timothy to the church. Even though not everybody is called to be a pastor, called to preach on a Sunday morning, everybody is a minister of the gospel because God gave the great commission to the church. We all have a part to play. So this is not just for people in training to be ministers. This is for you this morning. So Paul's call and Paul's testimony. We're going to look at Paul's call first. Paul's call in verse 8. I think this is the summary statement of the entire text. I think even though Paul gives other commands to Timothy throughout this book, uh, he tells him, preach the word, remind people of these things, what you've learned from me and trust to others. But yet Paul says here, in one concise statement, the summary of the book, in my opinion, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Now, it's not join with me in suffering for suffering's sake, because you don't get many takers. It's join with me in the ministry of the gospel, and if the suffering becomes necessary, so be it. We're going to deal with the suffering in a minute, but first I want to talk about join with me in this ministry of the gospel. The ministry of the gospel, do you know what that is? Can you sit down with somebody in a coffee house or Panera's or whatever? I don't drink coffee, and I almost never go to Panera's, but it seemed like the right thing to say. Can you sit down with somebody face-to-face? And in a few simple words that you understand, that they understand, and can you present the gospel? Paul is calling Timothy here to be rededicated to the ministry of the gospel. The gospel, the word itself means the good news. We all know that. But the gospel itself is the proclamation 
good or bad, short or long, of what God has done in Christ, reconciling all things to himself. It is that in Christ God has provided for sinners to rescue them, restore them, remake them, to qualify them to stand before him and to even be called children of God. It is the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as a substitute for those who could not find their own way to heaven and for those who, if we were to be honest, were not even looking for a way according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. It is God doing for sinners what they could not do for themselves, what they would not do for themselves, what they did not even want to do for themselves. But if that sounds complicated, how about save or remember the simple phrase, God save sinners? That's usually where I start, and I find I've got to break things down to a very simple, easy-to-remember phrase. God saves sinners. God. From here, you can, you can expand this. You can build on this God as he is. How about the fact that he is, he exists? It's God who saves, saves. He does the work from first to last. He brings people who were lost to himself. He makes them found. People who were stuck in the mud, he digs them out, cleans them off, and sets them on their feet. God saves sinners. Sinners is who we are by nature. Sinners in need of salvation. And it is all the work of God. And that is the message of the gospel. That is the message that we must proclaim. That's the message that Paul calls Timothy to proclaim. And I need to address one other thing here. You'll notice that it is not a nonverbal task. Now, I grew up in churches where I don't know if we just don't want to offend. (laughs) I'm sure that's part of it. Um, We want to make room for timid people like Timothy. And we all key on this one phrase that is unfairly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi where it says, okay, preach the gospel all the time and if necessary, use words. You know, that's a wonderful statement if you understand it properly. Um, It's great. It means your life ought to be consistent with what you claim is true. It means you ought to be involved in deeds of love and just simply random acts of kindness. You ought to, because that adds weight to your testimony. Okay, But there is no way me mowing my neighbor's yard is going to tell them the truths and the facts about the substitutionary death of Christ on his behalf. We've got to use words. It is not a nonverbal task. If you look in verse 11, Paul says that he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. These are verbal tasks. In chapter 2, Verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. All of these are verbal. We've got to speak the gospel. Now, I've already admitted my own timidity. Maybe that's you, okay? Rehearse it. Rehearse it. Every once in a while, I take the opportunity to talk to my men before we go to work, and I will sit them down on my time, and we'll preach the gospel. I'll find some way to say it, some way maybe they haven't heard it before. Sometimes I'm not feeling very creative, and I'll just do something very simple like God saves sinners, and if you do not know him, you need to. Okay, whatever form or fashion it takes, we have got to get past this nonverbal. We've got to preach the gospel. We are so committed. We are so verbal. (laughs) We are so public about converting people to conservatism, progressivism, Republican, Democrat, whatever it is. Pick your thing. And yet we won't preach the gospel. We must. 
We must. I'm not saying those things are unimportant. I'm a little bit of a political junkie myself. But that's not what's absolutely needed. The gospel is. We must preach the gospel. And in me calling you to this, to push yourselves out of your comfort zone, I don't want anyone, I say this with all the gentleness I can. I'm not naturally gentle. So take it as best you can. I don't want anyone coming up to me and telling me this is legalism or that I'm somehow telling you you must earn your merit before God. No, I'm calling you to your privilege. That's what Paul is doing to Timothy here. It is our privilege. Read the Gospels and take note of what happens when Jesus had an encounter with somebody. Whether he healed them of blindness or leprosy or whatever it is, their their responses were two. One, can I please go with you? And if he said yes or no, it didn't matter. The other was they immediately went out and started telling in the highways and the byways what God had done for them. So preach the gospel. Add to it your testimony. Don't ever underestimate the power of your testimony, but preach the gospel. And this is Paul's call to Timothy and Paul's call to you. Now, how about suffering for the gospel? Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Sign me up for that, right? I want to suffer for the gospel. Well, you know, it kind of helps that Paul had suffered because if someone called me to suffer for the gospel and he had had never left his home on the beach, then I would just tell him to leave me alone. But certainly, Paul had suffered. I am going to take the time because I have it to take. Um, 1 Corinthians 4. And I'm going, to, I'm going to do just a quick little survey of some of Paul's suffering because sometimes you want to know who it is telling you what to do. They've got to have the right to speak. 1 Corinthians 4, you may or may not be able to keep up with me here. Make sure you at least write down your references or get this off of our website so you can look them up. 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 9, reading through 13, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death, Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. We toil, working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. It's pretty rough. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. If I, from human motives, fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Good question. What would it profit me? Wild beasts at Ephesus, Paul in some sort of Colosseum experience here. And then he continues, if the dead are not raised, then let us just eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Amen. If we're going to fight with wild beasts for nothing, then let's just eat and drink and be merry. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Just read a couple of verses. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. In other words, Paul didn't like this, but he's being forced to boast about his experiences. So are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, 
beaten times without numbers, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And I say again, yeah, sign me up for that. I understand the reluctance. You know, Timothy had seen this firsthand. He'd seen Paul being stoned and left for dead. You know, he, he had heard Paul's stories of being shipwrecked and you know, night and day in the deep. Paul was not surprised by this, though. Paul's not surprised by it. In fact, he said it was because of his calling because of his calling, something he willingly endured because of his calling. But it's not just that. We have the words of Jesus in John 15 where Jesus said that the world has hated me first, it's going to hate you also. You know, Jesus elsewhere said that no servant is greater than his master. They have, they have persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. And then you add to this just simply the persecution of the suffering that comes as a Christian. You add to this his role as a messenger of the gospel um, at the very beginning, in Acts chapter 9, when Ananias came, the Lord told Ananias, Go and pray for this man, Paul, because he is going to be my instrument to the Gentiles. He will be the one I use to preach this good news to the Gentiles, and I will show him how much he will have to suffer for my name. My instrument, being the instrument of God connected with this idea of suffering for the ministry of the gospel. And Paul himself in Colossians 1.24 says, I do my part to fill up in my flesh that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, you have to make a distinction here. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, as far as the atonement goes, nothing. He said on the cross, it is finished. He fully paid for our sins. But ours is the ministry of the propagation of the gospel. And that is what Paul, in his flesh, filled up what was lacking, was the delivery of the message. Christ came and accomplished the salvation, and he appointed the church to go and tell. And so the ministry of the propagation, not propitiation, that Paul is talking about. And Paul gladly throws himself into this task. In his task of preaching the gospel, Paul bumped into or up against the kingdom or the powers of darkness, and he bore the marks of this conflict in his body. Thirty years give or take. Wonderful endurance and stamina. I don't know about you. Someone stretched me out and said, I'm going to give you so many lashes, I'd sign anything he wanted me to right then. But Paul says, join with me in suffering for the gospel. You notice in Glenn's prayer, you know, this is foreign to us. Who of us has suffered from the gospel other than maybe a little bit of embarrassment? I remember Dan Henley was a former preacher of ours, used to say, the tyranny of the raised eyebrow. <laughs> Somebody would start, start speaking the gospel and people just look at you kind of funny with the raised eyebrow. And we usually shut up about right there. Right? It is foreign to us, this idea of suffering for the ministry of the gospel. And it should not be. And the tide is turning. You heard Glenn's prayer? There was a time when the church held an honored position in our society. It doesn't. You know, and I'm, I'm no prophet. I don't know what's coming. But I know our position has changed. And I know we should be not surprised if the suffering comes, but we should preach the gospel anyway. We do it anyway. So, into this task, no matter the cost, 
Paul says, join with me. And I ask again, are you ready to sign up for that? You know, Timothy's sitting there reading this letter thinking, I don't know. You know, and Paul says, hey, come on, it's worth it. It's worth it. And Timothy just simply points the finger back and say, look at you, Paul. It's worth it. You know, 30 years you've done this, and where has it gotten you? You are in prison again. You have listed all of your sufferings, Paul. It's worth it. Not only that, even your friends up to this point have now abandoned you once again, don't want to be associated with you. You know, it's worth it. And Paul says, you need to correct your vision, son. You need to correct your vision. There is the, we have this thing, this natural vision versus the supernatural. There's something out there you know, that's greater than all of this. And I'm telling you, the supernatural, if you exclude it, then your natural vision is flawed. Because you cannot eliminate the supernatural from the natural. The supernatural is reality. The supernatural, the natural, all of it together is reality. And if you do not have the eyes of faith, you only see in part. Your vision is deficient. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Your vision is deficient, son. You're seeing only what's right here and now. You're seeing maybe only your circumstances. You're worried about you being embarrassed. You may be worrying about what somebody's going to think of you for a time. And Paul's saying, I'm thinking about eternity for myself and my hearers. Real sight, total sight, is only in this life with the eyes of faith. Although one day, (laughs) it will not just be the eyes of faith, for it will all be sight. Now, that's Paul's call to Timothy. We need to look at Paul's testimony. Paul's testimony in verse 12. I love this. Paul recognizes. He starts out by saying, For this reason I also suffer these things. What reason? Well, he said, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. But that doesn't mean I think my master is evil. (laughs) No, no. For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Yes, I'm sitting here alone in a prison. I'm rotting. I'm chained up to some. I'm not ashamed. Yes, people laugh at me when I open my mouth in front of Caesar, but I'm not ashamed. Paul in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. There's nothing embarrassing there. They may laugh, but that's their ignorance. There's nothing embarrassing there. He says, I am not ashamed. And he adds to his belief in the reality or the validity of the message. He says, I'm not ashamed because I have a certain confidence. In fact, I have a. let me give you just a quick Three-stage phrase here I want you to remember. So this is point number two, but it's got three quick points. Paul here claims a certain knowledge which leads to a certain confidence lasting to a certain day. A certain knowledge leading to a certain confidence lasting to a certain day. He says, that day. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, if you have the ESV, there is a slight difference in the wording there I will deal with in a moment when we talk about that day. But let me just first talk about a certain knowledge. Paul knows a person here. I know whom I have believed. It's a personal pronoun. It's not just a bunch of facts and figures of the gospel that Paul knows. He knows a person. Ever since God had transformed him, overwhelmed him by his grace on the road to Damascus and changed his thinking, gave him the vision to see the reality of the gospel. You know, ever since then, Paul has known him. And 
throughout all of the suffering that we've already chronicled and listed for Paul, throughout all these years, throughout all these beatings and imprisonments and whatever else, throughout fighting wild beasts with Ephesus, Paul had not walked alone. And because of this experience of 30 years in the midst of suffering, in the midst of ministry, in the midst of various relationships, Paul knows who he has believed in. The Lord had revealed himself to him way back on the road to Damascus, and Paul had walked with him these 30 years and found him faithful. So Paul has a certain knowledge, and this knowledge is of a person, and because he knows him, he has a certain confidence. He says, I know whom I have believed, and so I am convinced. Now the word there itself, it says, I have been convinced. I have been persuaded. See, that refers back to his experience here. All these times, there have been times I was in a tight position, and I wondered, is this really worth it? Is God truly faithful? And he says, absolutely he is. I am convinced. So I have been convinced it was a process, but the emphasis here is on the end result where Paul, as he sits in prison today, can say with a clear conscience, I'm convinced that my Lord is able to keep what I've entrusted to him. This is based on knowledge and experience, and Paul has become convinced that the Lord is able. He is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. He is able. He is equal to the task. This word for, like, guarding means he's equal to the task. He is strong enough to guard. He is, he is able to keep what is entrusted to him. Um, I need to deal with that real quick. Your ESV, instead of saying that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day, says something like he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I think that's a terrible translation, and I'm no translation expert, but I did work at it. Okay, the, the basic meaning of that Greek term there is my deposit. He is able to guard my deposit until that day. So whatever had been entrusted to Paul, Paul is now being taken out of the picture, so it only stands to reason that had it been Paul's deposit, either way, Paul is leaving it behind. And so Paul has entrusted even that thing to the Lord, and he believes the Lord is able to keep it until that day. So when we talk about the Lord, he is a faithful guard, equal to the task, strong enough to watch over and keep safe what is entrusted to him. Think about it. What has Paul entrusted to him? Everything. Paul has given 30 years now to the ministry of the gospel. He has planted churches. He has seen friends come to Christ. He, uh, he would entrust maybe children, if not his own family members. Paul did have some kind of family. We hear of a sister and a sister's son in the book of Acts. Um, he entrusted maybe his reputation. Isn't that important to many of us? You know, you can't tell me that wasn't important to Paul, who was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age there before Christ turned him around. Paul's reputation mattered to him. And yet later in Philippians, he says, I consider all these things a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he is saying, okay, okay, it doesn't matter what you take from me here. And, and yes, I have a tendency to worry over the churches that I have planted, over the people I'm going to leave behind, even for this young man, Timothy, who I'm hoping will take my place. Yeah, I have a tendency to worry about them, but they are out of my hands. I entrust them to the Lord who has been faithful to me, and I know that he is able to guard all these things until that day. And he is able to guard even my own self. Paul says that he himself 
feels as if he is a drink offering being poured out upon the altar. He knows the end is near. And he says, boy, just like we read previously, if, if this is for this life only, then let us eat and drink and be merry. Elsewhere, he says that we are fools to be most pitied if this is all there is. But Paul says, no, I've entrusted myself to him. He has made promises to me. I know he's good and able to keep his promises. So Paul has a certain knowledge and a certain confidence. You know, in the, Old Test- in the New Testament, I'm sorry, if, if a guard of a prison lost those who had been entrusted to his care, what happened to that guard? He was executed. We see this in the book of Acts. In fact, when Peter, remember, was delivered one night from, by the angels from within the prison, the next day Herod looked into this and said, what happened? Well, we lost our charge, <laughs> and he had him sent out and executed. And yet, what does Jesus say in John seventeen twelve Of the disciples whom God had given to him, I guarded them, and not one perished except the son of perdition. In John 10, 27 to 29, Jesus promises, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Paul knows this. Paul has a certain knowledge, and because of that, leading to a certain confidence. So when the world says, Paul, you're a fool, Paul says, that's okay. You have limited vision. I know him. And I know that he is able. And I know that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So a certain knowledge leading to a certain confidence lasting until a certain day. Paul uses that phrase, that day, two other times here in this epistle alone. In verse 18 of the same chapter, not verse 18, I'm sorry, let's look at uh, 18. (laughs) The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Okay, a little bit vague. We turn over to chapter 4, verse 8. In the future, Paul speaking again of himself. In fact, I'll start in verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. There is a day appointed. I've heard this a long, long time ago, and it just strikes me that God, if God has promised to make a distinction between the just and the unjust, and yet in this life it appears that he has not, then there must be a day when he will, because God's word cannot fail. Paul is looking forward to that day. He anticipates, based on 4 verse 8 here, that a day of glory and reward This is the day that makes all the other days worth it for Paul. A day when the veil is finally removed and Paul's faith shall be sight. When his sufferings will be vindicated as the Lord keeps his promises to the full. A day of glory for others as well. Because it goes on and says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So a day of glory for others, not just Paul, to all who have, like Paul, been transformed by the work of God and have come to know him. This will be a day of glory, a day of joy, a day that I cannot adequately describe, but long to see. But the fact that it is stated that this is a day of reward and glory for Paul and to all who have loved Christ's appearing implies that not all people fit into this category, hence the need for the preaching of the gospel. 
This day, which is a day of joy for believers, will be something else for those who do not know him. It will be a day of judgment, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. That's the point of the gospel. So people of God, rejoice, because there is coming a day when your faith will be sight, a day when your striving will cease and when you shall know and see God face to face as he already knows you. A day when the veil will be lifted and there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more sadness. A day when we will dwell with the Lord in glory forever without end. And people who know not God, my prayer for you this morning is that the Lord will also open your eyes to see his love, his mercy, his beauty, his kindness. That he will open your ears to hear the truth of his gospel as his people emboldened by this call go out and preach it. I pray that he will open your ears to hear the gospel, hear his good news, that you need not fear that day. If you will only turn to him and be saved from the day of judgment, turn to him, believing he is willing to save you, believing he is able to save you, and having done so, he will never let you go. Only look to him and believe.